Hey, everybody. So glad you are with us today. I uh, want to let you know, too, that we've got a special guest speaker. For those of you that have been around EV Free Fullerton for a while, you will recognize him immediately. For those of you that are new, though, we're going to hear today from Dale Burke, who was the senior pastor of our church from 1995 to 2010. He's leading a church down in Encinitas, California right now. Uh, but Dale and I go back a bit. I worked for him, actually, uh, in 1997 in the sports ministries department. I had an office in the gym. Uh, and it is my absolute pleasure to invite Dale back to be with us this morning. One of Dale's many legacies to our church was a heart for the community as expressed in the way we built facilities and many outreach ministries that are still going to this day, as well as a commitment to preaching God's word as we've invited him to do this morning. So please join me in welcoming back Dale Burke. Wow, that is uh, just too kind. It's a real joy to know Mike. It's a real joy to be back here. What a, what a privilege. What a privilege. You know me, I have a history of getting choked up, so let me just get it out of the way right now, right? <laughs> Woo! Okay. Wow, this place turned out nice. Turned out nice. Thank you for following through. Thank you, Mike, for the welcome. Just to save me from repeating this about 3,000 times before the day is out, uh, Becky and I are doing great. We're living in Carlsbad, California, where God has planted us in two roles, uh, my main role is serving as a pastor at Seacoast Community Church uh, in Encinitas, California. It's a tough place to live. Here's a picture of my backyard with my family. Can we bring that up? Yeah, that's where we live. That's our backyard. Now, it's not our backyard, but it's at least about four miles from where we live, okay? I can see the ocean. I just have to believe by faith that it's there, all right? But uh, we're having a great time, and God has planted us. The other thing that you could see are we're in the business of collecting grandchildren. Now, most of you in this audience at this service, from my observation, most of you can't relate to the joy of grandchildren. Um, But in case you ever have grandchildren in the future, this is what they look like. Uh, We have seven of them, uh, three now living right down the street from you in Fullerton. Uh, Paul and Becca, uh, three are there with little the teddy bear reminding us of Andy who's in heaven. And then our other three, the three on the wall, they've been arrested for thievery. Uh, kind of looks like that, doesn't it? Looks like a criminal lineup or something. But no, there's, there's the three. Those are Josh and Beth's three that live near us in Escondido. But it's a joy. The other thing we're really enjoying is God has planted us into the business of equipping leaders around the world. And Becky and I will be returning this summer Uh, to train leaders in Tanzania, Rwanda, and actually in Congo as well. So God has translated the uh, training materials that I've been teaching for many years that really grew out of my time here in Fullerton, uh, a chance to to teach those in Rwanda thanks to the relationship we started here at EV Free. In fact, if you kind of trace the history of it, it began here at EV Free from 07 to 010 and then moved beyond that right to the... uh, kind of taking the material and adapting it and having it translated to an African culture. And then God just seems to be blessing it from there. We taught it, uh, the published, newly published version was taught last year, and Seacoast has partnered with us in helping us do that uh, in uh, Rwanda, and then now it's multiplying as this year we're going to be taking the training to Congo, uh, DR Congo, and also to Tanzania, as well as additional training in Rwanda. So It's just a real joy. It's something God laid on my heart while I was here, and I wanted you to know that it's continuing on. So thank you for that investment in the world. 
Can you pray with me, okay? Let's pray together and go to the Word. Father God, thank you so much for your Word. Thanks for the chance to engage with you and listen to you. Thank you for all you're doing in our lives. Thank you for EV Free and uh, for Mike's leadership here and the whole team that uh, God has put together. Thank you, Father, for uh, your church. And thank you for the impact you're having, Father, as your gospel spreads around the world. So today, I just pray, Father, as we listen to you, as we listen to Jesus, as we observe Jesus in action in John chapter 8, I pray you teach us from your word. In Christ's name, amen. Hey, if you're not already there, get your Bibles out and turn to John chapter 8 with me. John chapter 8. If it's on your iPad, then turn it on, get there quick, and we're going to go there right now, John chapter 8. Now, while you're turning there, let me ask you to think about this. I've got to wait till I hear the pages stop rustling. I love hearing the sound of God's Word opening up. Here we go. What is the worst thing? Now, don't shout this out. But think, what is the worst thing you've ever done in your life? Now, some of you chuckle as you think about that. But what's the worst thing you've ever done in your life? Have you got it in your mind? Now, I want to take it a step deeper. What is the worst thing that you've ever been tempted to do in your life? Got it? Now, imagine this scenario. Imagine if you did it. Now, imagine you not only did it, but now imagine that you didn't just do it, but you got caught. And you didn't just do it and get caught, but you were discovered and the news spread like one of those California wildfires like we had down near our home recently. The news spread. It went viral. It's on Facebook. It's on social media. It's the hot feed on Twitter. It, 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 it goes viral. Everyone knows what you did. You did the worst thing you've ever been tempted to do. And everyone knows it. And then you walk into a room like this, a large room filled with a whole bunch of people that all know you. And you can kind of sense when you walk into the room, they're disgusted because they know what you did. And they know that you said you would never do that, but you did it. And you can sense their disgust, and you feel the shame. And as the room crowds in around you, and you can just kind of sense that it's uncomfortable even being there, you are taken up to the front of the room, and all of a sudden the, the crowd kind of parts, and sitting on a seat in front of you is God, is Jesus. What would you feel? What do you think would happen? What would he be feeling and thinking at that moment? You see, that story, which I've asked you to imagine in your minds, wasn't just imagined, it happened. It happened in John chapter 8, and we're going to see what we can learn from it. Listen to the story. We're going to go to the story first. Beginning John chapter 8, verse 1. Now, when Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, 
He came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down, and he began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. In the very act. This is not an accusation, it's a known fact. Now Jesus, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. Now let's pull up right there. Several things are revealed. First, their motive is to trap Jesus. And they've actually set a good trap. And if you don't understand why this is a good trap, you'll never understand the lesson of this story. Their motive was to trap Jesus. And the reason it's a good trap is Jesus had a reputation. Jesus had a reputation for being loved by the people that were down and out. Jesus had a reputation for standing up for the little guy. Jesus had a reputation of, of being loving and forgiving and, and caring for the poor and caring for the, for the sinner and, and even hanging out with those sinners. And Jesus had that type of, I'm a friend of the sinner reputation. Now, on the other hand, let me go over here. Jesus also said, without a doubt, Matthew chapter 5, I didn't come to... I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. And Jesus lived in obedience to his heavenly father. He lived a perfect life in perfect obedience to the law. So now they've got Jesus kind of between a rock and a hard place, you know, because on the one hand, if he follows the law and the law says, and we'll see it later in Deuteronomy 22, it says clearly that a person caught in adultery, that a man and woman caught in adultery uh, uh, were to be stoned to death. So on the one hand, Jesus is going to be disliked by the average, a lot of his followers if he follows through on the law. But on the other hand, if he ignores the law, sets the law aside, then he's sinning and he's disobeyed the law. So how could he claim to be the Messiah and the Son of God? Man, this was a great trap. They got him, they think. Their hypocrisy, secondly, is obvious. Their hypocrisy is obvious because, for one thing, it takes two to have adultery. I know this is a crowd that's fairly mature, but do you understand that? Yeah, last time I checked, if you're caught in adultery in the very act, the very act of adultery is not a solo event, okay? So where's the guy? And in fact, if you go back to the Old Testament, the hypocrisy of this is even stronger because in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, every time it talks about these commands of various sexual sins, and, and adultery wasn't the only one, there were several, adultery, homosexuality, others. If you were caught in these sins, it, it always led with this statement. Therefore, if a man is caught doing this, he and the adulteress could be stoned. If a man is caught, if a man is caught, it's kind of like Scripture always leads with the responsibility being on the guy. But in this case, the guy's missing, even though he was caught in the very act. Their hypocrisy is obvious. Their motive is to trap. So Jesus' response, let me read it now, is what I summarize in two words. It is an awesome creative blend of grace and truth. Listen to it. But Jesus stooped down with his finger, and he wrote on the ground. 
But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them. Now, you've got to picture this now. They're, 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 they're hounding Jesus for an answer. It says when they persisted, you've got to answer this, Jesus. You've got to answer our question. And instead of answering, first he goes silent. But he just stoops down and he starts, he starts writing on the ground. So he's writing in the dust. Now, I'd love to know what he's written, okay? I can't promise you what, I can't say what he's written, but I've got a good idea that I want to propose to you. He's writing something in the dust, but look at the effect of what he's writing. And straightening up, he said to them, probably pointing to what he had just written on the ground, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Genius. So he doesn't deny the law. He doesn't deny that they have a right to do that. But he writes something in the dust, and he says, let him, who's, let him who is out without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stooped down, and he kept writing. So he writes part two, and he keeps writing. But when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. Obvi- interesting observation that the old guys get it first. Isn't that true? Amen? Yeah. I thought a young crowd like you would appreciate that. Yeah, the old guys get it first. They're very aware of their own sins. The young, maybe a little more prideful bucks, it takes them a little longer, but eventually they all leave. It says, when they heard it, they began to leave, the old ones first, and he, he was left alone. Jesus was left alone with the woman where she was in the center of the court. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, but from now on, sin no more. Go, but from now on, sin no more. Jesus responds with this awesome blending of grace and truth. Now, what do we learn from this? Let's kind of unpack some significance from the story to our lives. Let me make a few observations, four in fact. Here they are. If you want to write them down, take them home with you. You can dwell on these a little deeper if you do the uh, appointments, uh, do the sermon-based. A lot of your groups are doing sermon-based study and follow-up, so it's a great idea, by the way. We're doing that down at Seacoast. Number one, Jesus respects the law, but he appeals to a higher law, the law of love. He respects the law, but he points out that there's a piece of the law that they had ignored, and it's the higher law, what I call the law of love. Now, how do I know this? Well, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, does indeed say this. Here it is. I'll give it to you on the screen. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, uh, the one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer, and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That's what the law said. That is Leviticus chapter 20. Now, here's my theory, is that what Jesus may very well have written in the dirt, we knew it was something that caused every one of them to walk away. And I'm thinking, what could that be? I think he wrote, see Leviticus 19. You say, why do I say see Leviticus 19? 
Leviticus 20 has a whole long list of various sins that are punishable by death. But then you go back one chapter before you get there, and this is how God, in the law, not the New Testament, the Old Testament law, he says this in Leviticus 19, and I want to show it to you. I'll unpack it phrase by phrase, 15 to 18. Here it goes. I want to hit it quick. Number one, you shall do no injustice in your judgment. I think a couple old guys walked away. You shall not be partial. Where's the guy? And some more walked away. You shall not act against the life of your neighbor. You shall not hate in your heart. And some more walked away. You shall not incur your own sin because of their sin. You shall not take vengeance. You shall not bear a grudge. And then it climaxes after saying, you shall not, 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 not. And he turns to the positive and it says this in verse 18. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Wow. See, I love to envision Jesus pointing them to say, you know something, before you get to the list of the crimes that are indeed punishable by death, remember that as you apply the law, there's a higher law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I'm thankful that we don't live under the Old Testament law today. I think we're freed by God's grace to do that. But I'm thankful that this part of the Old Testament law, Jesus himself says, The essence of life is loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Man, I'm thankful for that. And I think that this would be the same reminder Jesus would lay on us today. You know, whenever we see things and we see and we know people that are living in sin or, you know, that that we would always remember that before we judge and lay down the hammer that you better remember that Leviticus 19 comes before Leviticus 20. You need to love this woman the way you would want to be loved and treated right now. Now let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Number two, second observation. Jesus uses the law to humble religious people and to stimulate their compassion. I'll just leave that up for a minute while we talk about it. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is, you know, Jesus takes them to the law, but he uses this situation to humble them. And one by one, they changed their mind and walked away. But also to hopefully stimulate a deeper compassion for people that are trapped in sin for people that are dealing with sin, people that have really, really messed it up. Romans three nineteen and 20 says this. I'll give this one to you on the screen. It says this. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed. Every mouth may be closed. All the world may become accountable to God Verse 20, because of the works, because by the works of the law, no flesh is going to be justified in his sight. No one can be good enough to earn their way into heaven, earn their way into forgiveness. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. See, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
See, that's, it wakes up our consciousness. It helps us realize not how good we can be, but it reminds us of how screwed up we are. All of us. Because when I look at the command in the law, not just the New Testament, in the Old Testament law, I should love my neighbor as myself. And I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. It humbles me and makes me realize, oh my gosh, I'm in deep trouble if I'm trying to get to God by the law. So see, it humbles me. But it should also stimulate compassion. I don't have time to show you this longer passage, but write it down. Look it up this week. Titus 3, 3 through 7. But the heart of Titus 3, 3 through 7 is this. He talks about that when we're relating to the lost world, we're relating to people that don't have this relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, and the, and the highlight of it is this. For you once were foolish yourselves. For we also once were foolish ourselves, but God saved us. And let me tell you what's in between those little dot, 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 okay? But God saved us, not by the deeds that we've done in the flesh, but by his tender mercy. But by the tender mercy of God, by the grace of God, by the undeserved, absolute, free gift of God, he changed us so we don't live like that. But therefore, we are not better than them. We are just more blessed. We are blessed by grace. We need to remember that as we encounter people that do things that we would never do or never think we'd do at least. I read a great quote. If you want to read a good book, I mentioned this to you a few years ago when I was teaching here. Philip Yancey's book, So What's So Amazing About Grace, um, begins with this story and this challenge to the church. What's so amazing about grace? He relates a story that a friend of his who works with the down and out uh, in inner city Chicago, true story, had relayed to him. The story goes like this. A prostitute came to me, this man says, recently in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Can you picture that? Through sobs and tears, she told me that she had been renting out her daughter, two years old, to men interested in, and I'm not going to read the next phrase. You can fill it in. She, made, she said she made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in an entire night. She had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. Uh, for one thing, it made me legally liable. I'm required to report cases of child abuse. I had no idea what to say to this woman. At last, I asked if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. I'll never forget her look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church, <laughs> she cried, why would I go there? I already feel terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. And Yancey writes this. He says, what struck me about my friend's story is that women like this prostitute fled toward Jesus, not away from him. The worse a person felt about him or herself, the more likely she saw Jesus as a refuge. Has the church lost that gift? 
Evidently, the down and out who flocked to Jesus when he lived on earth no longer feel comfortable among his followers. What has happened? The more I pondered this question, I felt drawn to one word as the key. All that follows uncoils from that one word. Grace. Or the absence thereof. See, we need to remember the old saying I grew up with. See if you can complete it. If, if you know it, say it out loud as soon as you guess it. There but by the grace of God go I. Not there but by the grace of God go you. It's not talking to the person next to you. It's talking about you. It's talking about me. You see, as soon as I decide I would never do that, then I'm fooling myself. There's a spiritual arrogance that sets in. This woman's about a, this story's about a woman caught in adultery, in the very act of adultery. You know, Becky and I this summer celebrate our 40th wedding anniversary. You know, we were married in West Virginia at age 12. Yeah. You believe that? No. Now, they marry young in West Virginia, but not that young. And she wasn't pregnant. Can I add that? No, but we, uh, yeah, we had dated four years, and we were married when I was 20, and she was 19, and as soon as she got educated enough to support me, I married her. <laughs> she put me through seminary. So would I cheat on her? Could I be tempted to have an affair? Would I have an affair and wreck my reputation with my grandchildren and my kids and you and my church and destroy my life? Could I do that? You know what the answer to that is? You bet. Because sin allowed to take root causes people to do Stupid stuff all the time. Stupid, self-destructive, dumb stuff. I don't know what the backstory was behind this woman. I'm sure Jesus knew it. But whatever, whatever it is, Jesus uses this story to say to a whole bunch of real religious people. I mean, these Pharisees, man, they memorize the law of God. Do you do that? They never miss going to temple, going to synagogue. They never miss. They always tithe their tithes right to the very penny. Do you do that? They're way more religious than you and me. But whatever Jesus wrote in the dirt, they realize there, but by the grace of God go I. And they had hopefully... At least, I think Jesus would want this story to stimulate not only our humility, but also our compassion for people around us who are walking, living life without Jesus Christ. Don't think you're better, just realize you're more blessed. Third observation. Jesus hates all sin because it robs us of life. See, why is the law so hard on sin? You know, because most of us would probably not vote that uh, adultery should be punishable by stoning, right? I mean, I wouldn't have written it that way. 
And I can't tell you exactly why God wrote it that way. He tells us in Deuteronomy 22 that he wrote it that way because he was doing something very special at a very special time in history. He was calling out a people, the people of Israel, to be his chosen nation to deliver his chosen Messiah to a dead world. And he said, I've got to have a people that I can show my glory to the world through them as I love on them unconditionally. So yeah, he was tough on some of these sins. And he he tells us why. Deuteronomy 22, he says, I'm about ready to give you a wonderful land to live in, a blessed life, but don't screw it up. Don't do this. Don't do the sins of the people that live there now, these pagan people that practiced human sacrifice and practiced all kinds of sexual perversion and, and, and abuse and, and, and didn't respect women one bit and this and that. Uh, you know, God says, I don't want my people to be like that. So therefore, to purge evil from the nation, he laid down some tough penalties, even stoning. But then the beauty of the Old Testament is before he told them, before you apply these hard principles, you remember that the highest law over all of it is make sure you're loving your neighbor as you should love yourself. Wow. I see. But he is tough on sin. He is tough on sin because it robs us of life. Let me just read a quick excerpt from Deuteronomy 30 because this shows that it's the end of the law section of Deuteronomy, and it reveals the heart of God behind the law. I'll bring it up on the screen. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15 says this, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments so that you may live and multiply and so that the Lord your God may bless your socks off. That's in the Hebrew text. Bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. See, what he's saying is choose life. What he's saying is, I lay before you death and life, for heaven's sakes, choose life. Love God, follow his law, because sin is nasty and it robs you of life. Number four. Fourth and final point of the morning is this. I think what Jesus is doing in all of this is he calls us to be generous with both grace and truth. Man, we just need to be rich in grace and truth. And the problem is most of us need to be, we're heavy on one and we are light on the other. I think most churches, most Christians I've met uh, tend to come out of the womb spiritually, heavy on one, light on the other. John 1.14 says Jesus was a man full of grace and full of truth. He always blended them creatively according to the need of the moment. So I think my challenge for my life, at least, if you want to join me, is to ask, where am I? Am I one of these grace-oriented people? I'm very easy to forgive, very easy to overlook other people's sins, very easy to just kind of accept everyone the way they are. Very easy to do that. But yet I would never confront someone and say, you know something, but however, that is sin and it's not good for you. 
Or am I a truth-oriented person where, man, I just, I stand by the word, I stand by the truth. I know what God says, and and you need to know it too. And if you don't follow it, then I'm not going to love you. We're real good at confrontation, but not compassion. And it seems that what Jesus is challenging the church today, and we need it in our culture, is this blending of we need to speak the truth to our culture because they need to hear hard truth that they will not like. But they need it delivered in such a spirit of grace and love that they listen. That's the challenge. Becky and I were um, privileged to spend some time in Peru recently visiting our daughter, Jamie and Tom, her husband. And they were, they were staying for almost two months and renting a room from a man named Alberto. Alberto didn't speak any English, but I had a week where I saw Alberto every day, and one day we took a long trip together up into the mountains of Peru. We had a great time, and Alberto, though, really began to feel like a friend. And Alberto, everywhere he'd go, he would want to show us the, 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 the big, the big uh, cathedral in the city. Each town had these big cathedrals, and and he, he would tell us that this town has a saint, and, and people come here, and they crawl on their knees up this mountainside. To Every year they do a pilgrimage, and they get on their knees, and they crawl on their hands and knees until they almost bleed to get up there and to, to show the saint that they, that they deserve forgiveness. And, and, and then they pray to the virgin of the city, and, and, I, and I'm thinking, I'm, and it's making me sick to think Alberto has been around Christianity and knows nothing about the grace of God. So when I got a chance one day on a mountain to talk with him through translation, I said, because he asked me, God set it up. He asked me, he said, so Dale, you are a, uh, you are a priest. I said, well, kind of, <laughs> just a married one. But you know, uh, yeah, so I'm kind of, yeah, I'm a holy guy. So you know, you're a pastor, a priest. He says, but tell me about your church, you know, because... Yeah, what's, what's the difference? And I said, well, let me explain the main difference. I said, Alberto, I think the main difference is, is I love to teach people about grace. Our church celebrates grace. We realize that you don't need to pray through the saints. You don't need to pray through a virgin. You don't need to pray through anybody. You pray through Jesus. Jesus did it all on the cross. He died for my sins. He rose from the dead. Blah, blah, blah. I got to give you the short version, you know, because Mike won't let me preach more than 35 minutes. But, you know, the reality is that, you know, you know I understand that. So the reality is, though, Alberto needed to hear about grace. It was a joy to tell him about grace, even though I, it was all through translation, being translated by another young man that was with us named Herb, a great new friend who uh, does not know the Lord yet, I don't believe. So, so I, I don't know how much is being translated, but, you know, I told him about grace. But, you know, I didn't really press the issue, but I just tried to just lovingly tell him about grace. When we left at almost six in the morning to go to the airport, Alberto got out of bed, got on his little motorcycle, rode down to the hotel to say bye to us. The last thing that I did was I said, Alberto, thanks so much for being such a good friend to my kids. Alberto, study grace. Study grace. 
That's the, the final thing I'd encourage you to do. He said, oh, great. Alberta's 54 years old, slim as can be, surfs, great shape, right? Three weeks later, we get a text message telling us that Alberto had died, age 54, probably a heart attack. Men and women, you're surrounded by people that need to understand grace, need to understand the gift of God, need to understand the gospel. And just because they look good and they look healthy and they live in Orange County or San Diego County or no matter how much money they got, they are in poverty and desperately in desperate if they don't know about grace. And Jesus is telling us, You need to give people grace and truth. So as we wrap up, let me leave you with some questions for you to think through in your own life. So where do you need his truth with grace, like this woman? Maybe it's for humility to deal with your own self-righteous arrogance. Because at times I think we all slip into a little bit of self-righteous evangelical arrogance. Why don't why doesn't the world get it? Why don't they live like we live? Or think like we think? Number two, maybe it's to pray about your honesty, about your own sins. Maybe it's the need for love because we really do lack compassion for those people in the world that are different than us that are trapped in different addictions and sins and lifestyles. Maybe it's forgiveness. Maybe it's this, to accept the sweet offer of His amazing grace. Maybe not so much sometimes because of a sin that you've done, but because you just need to hear from God, I forgive you. I love you. I do not condemn you. Go, get up, walk with me, love me. Sin no more because sin is terrible. It's bad for you. Maybe those questions. Can you bring that list back up? Maybe one of those four questions can speak into your life. Humility, honesty. There we go. Humility, Honesty, love, forgiveness. What does God want to do in you today? Pray with me. Father God, thank you for the incredible truth of your word. Thank you for the incredible model of Jesus. So as we reflect on those final things, Father, our need to be more humble, more honest, more loving more full of grace. Would you do your work in us? Not in somebody else, God. You'll take care of them. Would you do your work in us, your church here at EV Free, your church down in Encinitas, your church around the world. Make us a church rich in grace and truth. In Christ's name, amen.